Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another quarantined edition of the Corner Store Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Koval. You're listening, as always, via WGN Radio. And uh, today in the Corner Store, we have uh, someone who has contributed so much to culture, both in the city of Chicago and, and around the world, a professor of film um, specializing in documentary films at Columbia College Chicago and the auteur of uh, a film that will premiere this weekend uh well not premiere it's been out but uh we'll show i think for the first time on on wttw which we're really excited about a documentary film about uh an incredible writer a chicagoan algren uh, this filmmaker i think loves the city uh as as i love the city in, in, a, in a great tradition of, of creatives who have really given back to the city um you know through the art that they make so it's a pleasure to have michael kaplan in the corner store welcome man Oh, well, thank you. Thanks. It's great to be here. And definitely uh, coming from my corner of Chicago right now, I'm in Albany Park and um, actually living about two blocks away from where Nelson Algren grew up. So it's a great place to be to talk to you about him. Yeah. Well, yeah. So so I guess, you know, what begins your fascination with with Algren? You know, when when did you first get turned on to him and his work? When did when did this, you know, mild obsession begin for you right right well i grew up in chicago let me just give you that background originally on the far southeast side of chicago down at 102nd and yates and then uh, later on west rogers park so i really knew chicago from both ends of the city um but it wasn't until i stumbled on to uh, a used paperback of man with the golden arm when I was about 21 or 22, that I discovered the Chicago that I, I kind of knew was there, but hadn't really encountered. Um, especially growing up on the South Side, I knew that there were these uh, sailor bars that weren't too far from where I was growing up. And there was this whole kind of world of this kind of the, the underclass, the, uh, the, the barely surviving working class and their world. And that was something that um, I was sheltered from growing up. And when I saw what Aldrin wrote about, um, I was just hooked because this was, you know, this was the real stuff. This was the Chicago that um, I knew was there, but I had never really seen in all of its glory. Yeah, so I, I we'll come back to Algren in the film, and I want to talk about you know what we'll, what people can uh, see over the weekend on WTTW. But um, you said you were sheltered from some of that. So, so what you know what was your childhood like? Like, how did you grow up? What what did your parents do? Well, I grew up originally, like I said, till I was age thirteen on the southeast side of Chicago. It was kind of a I'd say mixed fifty fifty of working class and middle class, um, and. Uh, you know, my dad was a, uh, a German-Jewish refugee from the Holocaust, you know, um, and who had ended up in Chicago after World War II, and he became an accountant because that was a good way to make a living and ended up working for the IRS for about 25 years. Um, my mom grew up on the west side of Chicago um, when the west side was more, uh, you know, white, ethnic, Jewish, um, and uh, so they uh, ended up meeting each other in Hyde Park and then moving to the southeast side to get a house. And that's where me and my brother grew up. So, um, you know, it was, uh, you know, it was middle class, but 
you know, the world I lived in was also lots of working class and it was a real mix of white ethnic groups. And that was, that was, you know, it was Southeast side was a almost suburban in many ways because we were so far away from downtown. But there was this other side where the, uh, the Yates bus went right by in front of our house and I could get on it and go downtown. So it's not like we felt completely cut off, but the world was, it was pretty far, you know, it was, it was, uh, there were big parks, um, lots of places to ride my bike, but then we had the steel mills, you know, just about a mile east of us. So, you know, we used to, uh, uh, joke that you could see the sunset, you know, in the West and you could also see it in the East because when it got dark, you could see them pouring the slag and you could see the glow in the distance. So it was really, yeah, I'd say a mixed, very Chicago kind of upbringing. Yeah. And do you know, you mentioned your parents met in Hyde Park. Do you know how they met? Uh, they actually met at a dance at a synagogue. So it was really, really just totally classic. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you just can't get better than that. My dad, like I said, was relatively new to Chicago. And my mom um, was teaching and uh they just uh they met and that was that i think about three months later they were married okay that's great um so you 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 said you got you found the the paperback of man with golden arm at 21 were you already you you know you're an accomplished filmmaker and you have you know many films under your belt and and you teach were you already interested in in the creative space you know uh in in high school in college when at what point did you begin to think of yourself as an artist, as a creative? Yeah, probably about 10 years old, I went to summer camp, um, day camp, um, because we couldn't afford overnight camp, but I went to day camp, and um, one of the classes you could take was photography. And um, uh, we, uh, we, we uh, uh, developed our own photos, and I'll just never forget that time that that first photo came up in front of me, and I was hooked. You know, I, I started taking photos. My dad built a dark room for me at home. And uh, so photography was really my way in. And the things I was attracted to was the things that I experienced, which was the urban world. So I really just started going downtown and taking pictures of the people and the buildings downtown, that black and white kind of classic Photography that really developed in the 50s and 60s in America. Um, and eventually I learned about the people like, uh, you know, Henri Cartier-Bresson, people who did the, you know, the, the, the moment, finding that moment that uh, everything came together. The decisive moment is what he called. I didn't think that you could make a living as an artist. And uh, growing up, I think um, I knew one person that my parents knew who made their living as an artist. Um, and so it just, it didn't seem like it was something that was, uh, achievable. You, you found a job, you know, uh, so I was, I was really, I was on my way to doing it, but I wasn't there yet. Right. Of course, of course. So, uh, but once you began to pick up the camera, I mean, what did your, what did your parents think about your, you know, kind of veering off in, into the arts? Well, they liked it, you know, they supported it, but um, the closer I got to finishing college, 
the more they would say, well, you know, that's fine. You can do that as a hobby, but you have to find something serious. And by then, I knew that that's not what I would have wanted to do, whatever serious was. So, um, you know, uh, I read years ago that Paul Newman said this about his life, and I, I've taken it on, which was I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew what I didn't want to do. So I, I spent a good deal of my 20s trying to figure out what the hell I was doing. I just knew that going to a job nine to five was not what I wanted to do. That just sounded like hell to me. Of course, yeah. So what were you doing during your 20s? Uh, making a living through various uh, ways. I started off as a waiter, worked in a bookstore for a couple of years, actually got a job, and this was a weird turning point because of my knowledge of German, which I had studied in college, um, making instructional videos in German, which in the 80s, if you would ask somebody, did you know that there is a job for people who make videos that get that instruct corporations that are in German? I mean, that, that you know, that was something that it just didn't even exist a few years beforehand. And I stumbled onto the job by uh, adding the reader and um, I hated it. You know, the job itself was boring. I was making more money than I had ever made. I'll do art at night, and I'll just do this daytime thing. Um, no, I no, that wasn't good enough. I, I knew what I was doing. I had no idea what I was doing, but I was in my 20s, and so I quit it. And um, then I ended up doing some photography, freelance. I started doing location scouting for some of the films that were shooting in Chicago, which weren't that many at the time. And um, it wasn't until I got married and divorced um, in my 20s that I said, okay, gotta, gotta figure something out. And uh, that, was, that was the moment when I said, okay, have to go to grad school. And that's when I uh, got uh, enrolled at uh, Northwestern to get my MFA in film. Right, okay. And, and, and film as opposed to photography, what, what kind of drew you more towards that that's end of things? Well, it just, um, that is, a, you know, that's a good question. And I think it's really about the storytelling is there was something bigger. You know, uh, photography, you know, it's, it's always the decisive moment and it definitely tells stories. And the great photographers tell great stories, but... I just felt like there was something more. And it was also, um, you know, the late 80s, and there was this kind of, uh, you know, it was the beginning of that renaissance of the uh, the film school nerds, you know. So you had people like Allison Anders, who made Gas Food Lodging. You had Spike Lee. You had John Sayles. And I just said, those are the stories I want to tell. And I didn't connect it with Algren at that time, but everyone was making stories about real people, people mm. that were not getting stories told by, you know, Hollywood. So you had working class people, um, Blue Collar by Bl Paul Schrader just blew me away. Um, and so you had these films about, you know, working class people, people of color, people of LGBT background. So it just, it was the kind of thing that I just said that, that's something I felt like I had the capability of doing and wanted to do. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Now, so what were some of those 
first stories you began to tell? Because I know Algren obviously is, you know, you've done many films. Um, right. Uh, and, and I'm not sure about the order of the filmography, but, um, yeah, what are some of those first places where you began to kind of turn your focus and, and, and what, what, you know, what, what, what are some of those stories you, you wanted to tell? Well, I always loved documentaries, but the focus at uh, Northwestern was really fiction films, um, what most people call narrative films. And so that's what I was working on. And like I said, I, I was really attracted to those, you know, the, the kind of what was coming up at that point in the U.S. of filmmaking. And um, uh, it, um, I, after I, while I was at Northwestern, I was making fiction films, um, but I also discovered documentary filmmakers that I really fell in love with, including Cartemquin, who's been making films in Chicago for 50 years. They made Hoop Dreams. Um, I actually went over there and just introduced myself and got an unpaid position there and worked there for about four or five months um, because I liked what they were doing. Um, but it was really um, when I made a, uh, a, a, a stage documentary uh, the Night Larry Kramer Kissed Me, that I really was shifting on to documentary. And it's um, a one-man show by a man named David Drake who wrote and, uh, wrote it and, and performed it, and it was the longest-running uh, off-Broadway one-man show ever. Um, and I met David because he was in a film that I had produced with a friend of mine um, that was a fiction film, and he became a friend. And then he approached me... Uh, to see if I'd be interested in helping to produce uh, a film version of his one-man play. And so um, that was really my first documentary. Um, and that, you know, that was incredibly exciting. Um, it did very well on the festival world. It got out um, to theaters. Um, and um, the one thing that didn't happen, though, was... Uh, despite all the reviews we got in the distribution, I wasn't really making a lot of money. In fact, I wasn't making any money doing it. Um, but I was still relatively young and definitely still motivated to keep doing more. And so um, I started uh, working on what I thought would be my next feature film, which would be kind of an adaptation of an experience that had happened to my dad growing up in Germany. Um, and this was about uh, a small group of uh, German-Jewish teenagers who were on a farm in Germany. I should back up and say this happened because my father passed. And so as I was mulling over his life, I started thinking about this story that I had grown up hearing um, that I realized was really the basis of what I thought would be a great film. Um, condensing that greatly, um, I started doing interviews with some of the people who were still alive. And as I was doing the interviews, I realized that I didn't want to make an adaptation of it. I wanted to make a documentary about it. So um, even though I feel like The Night Larry Kramer Kissed Me was my first documentary, I feel like what became Stones from the Soil was really my first personal documentary mm. that where it was really me as director and writer. And it was telling, obviously, a very personal story about my dad and his uh, experience 
as a teenager uh, in Nazi Germany and how he eventually ended up uh, getting out as well as about 150 other teenagers. Yeah. Um, So when when does the idea for for telling the story of of Algren come back to you? Okay. Okay. So... So um, I made one other film after that um, about a magician, uh, an amazing stand-up, um, uh, close-up magician named Eugene Berger, and that took about five years. And while I was finishing it, um, I met this photographer named Art Shea at a uh, art gallery opening, and I knew Art Shea because of his work um, about Algren. That any photo you'd see of Algren was almost for sure a photo by Arche. And when I met Art, he was at that point a relatively young, 87-year-old um, guy who's about five foot two, um, built like a fire plug from the Bronx. Um, and uh, I said, uh, "Well, Mr. Shea, I just love your work about." of Nelson Algren and he says well what do you do and I said well I'm a documentary filmmaker and he said you should do something about Algren and I said okay and that was really that that's what started (laughs) the whole experience and what I tell my students is be careful what you say yes to because you don't know you've just committed yourself to five years of making it and now it's been you know another five years since then um so it, that, that's, I mean, it just was really happenstance. Um, I was ready, and again, something I tell my students is you have to be ready to be ready. So by that point, I knew how to make a documentary, and I knew what kind of work I wanted to do because I wasn't going to be making a living doing it, but I was going to be invested in making something that um, really mattered to me and that I thought I could put my stamp on. So that was really what uh, drew me into uh, this this story because I just thought, yeah, Nelson Algren, it's Chicago. It's these amazing black and white photographs by Art Shea, who just spent so much time with Algren and was his good friend, went down with him to Skid Row, just saw him in every kind of facet of his life. And so I realized that, you know, you could, you just couldn't make a documentary about Nelson Algren without Archie's photos. And I was kind of amazed, frankly, that no one had done it at that point. So um, uh, once I realized that no one had, I just moved ahead and said, let's do this. And so that was really, it was really happenstance. And yet again, you could say nothing's totally random, you know? Yeah. No, sure. And, 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 you know, you, you, the film is, is great. And I think for people who know Algren, there's so much there that you'll, that you don't know yeah, in, in, in your documentary, but also just as an introduction to a, you know, incredible and compelling literary figure. Um, you, you tell the story through the lenses of many people uh, who, who are some of the people we can expect to see in in the documentary well i was really worried that we would not be able to get any people who knew algren because he had died in 1980 and so i thought oh my god you know everyone would be dead but as it turned out there were a lot of younger people who knew him so um one person led to another and we ended up uh interviewing in Chicago, the people who are from Chicago would know people will like Archie. Um, 
but also Rick Kogan, who's an amazing writer, journalist, uh, radio guy, um, and uh, Bill Savage, who teaches at Northwestern, who's an amazing uh, Algren uh, scholar. But then we ended up getting into these wild kind of connections, people like William Friedkin, who directed The Exorcist and The French Connection, grew up in Chicago in Uptown and used to uh, play poker with Algren when he was, when he, Friedkin was in his 20s and Algren was probably in his 50s. Um, uh, other people, another, you know, famous filmmaker, um, uh, sorry, blanking, um, uh, coming, uh, totally blank. Okay, coming back to it. Uh, John Sayles, another filmmaker who did not know Algren but is a big fan and was actually sparked to make his film um, Nine Men Out um, about the Black Sox scandal by something he had read that Algren had written. Um, uh, other people, uh, Denise DeClue, who is a writer here in Chicago, and she used to date Algren. Hmm. So we just got this incredible, you know, mix of um, writers and artists and uh, uh friends of Algren, uh, theater people, you know, it just, it, we, we had about 15, 20 people that have never been interviewed about Algren who got to tell their story. And um, sadly, but probably about four or five of them have died since the, uh, since we interviewed them. Yeah. Um, one of the coolest uh, interviews was Russell Banks, whom a lot of people know is just this amazing writer. Well, Russell Banks was this 20-year-old kid, <coughs> excuse me, um, who uh, met Algren at a writer's conference, and um, he, he very tentatively went up to Algren and handed him a manuscript, and Algren read it, or looked at it and said, yeah, yeah, okay, you've definitely got potential, kid. And then they went off for this two-day bender, you know, <laughs> Because Algren says, you have a car? And he said, yeah, I've got a car. He says, I want to get out of here. This, this, this conference is boring. So they went off and just had this wild time. Amazing. And now you look at someone like Russell Banks in his 70s, and he's just sitting there saying, I wouldn't have been a writer if Nelson Algren hadn't said, yeah, kid, you got the stuff. Right. So I just it was just amazing stories um, that he not just uh, was an incredible writer, um, but that he also, as a person, meant so much to so many people and, and just really sparked them and made them feel like they were part of something bigger. Yeah. So why, why for you, Algren? Like, why is he such a compelling figure, character, that, you know, you wanted to, to do this? To, you know, obviously, in the moment you said yes to Art Shea, because who could say no? But... You know, you did spend a very long time not only making the film, but also coming to, you know, know Algren intimately to become an expert. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it uh, well, you know, the, the starting point is being in Chicago and he writes about Chicago like few people did. But the reality is it's much bigger. So Algren wrote about uh, the urban world and specifically really wrote about the underclass and the working class, the people that most people don't notice. And that's just inherently interesting to me. You know, I didn't want to um, tell the stories of the people that everybody already knew, 
but you know, I wanted to expand people's world, and that's what he did. So that was really one of the reasons that uh, drew me into telling the story about Algren because he wrote about uh, the people that are lying on the street or drinking in the bar, and the people you just don't know anything about, but they're part of the vibrancy of the city. Um, the other part of it is that he wrote so well. He wasn't just a guy like a, a journalist. Um, not that there aren't amazing journalists who are writers, but he really he wrote with a poet poetic flair. So he brought these two qualities together that were just incredibly uh, rare to come together to tell those stories about the underclass, but also to tell them in a way that drew you in where you could see this was a writer who cared about the craft of writing. I'm not a writer, um, but I know when there's a good writer in front of me, and, and that, that's Nelson Algren. Yeah, and, and what do you think, what are some of the things you think we could take away, learn from Algren now about the world, about the city, about the Chicago we're in now? The, you right. Know? Well, you know, I mean, Algren... Algren wrote in the in the 40s and 50s, 60s, all the way to the 70s, and he won the first National Book Award. I, I wanted to make sure to mention that in 1950 for Man with the Golden Arm. And America at that time was really interested in seeing, looking at itself honestly, and seeing what is behind what what Algren used to say, what's behind the billboard. You know, what 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 is it that we're not looking at? And then after a while, as we got into the late 50s and 60s, um, Saul Bellow became the big Chicago writer, and he wrote about the middle class in Hyde Park. And those are great stories. But, you know, Chicago, um, America kind of lost its interest in telling those kind of important stories. And so um, that, to me, is something that... Uh, uh, you will see every few years that there'll be a current American writer who, who gets attracted to that. You know, um, you're one of those writers. You know, you, uh, there are people who just really say this, this is, you know, this is something that's been forgotten. It's not a big part of American literature, but I think it's important. And, you know, as we are today, we're a bigger, we're actually not a bigger city than ever. We're a smaller city than we used to be, but... Yeah, you know, America is more of an urban country than it used to be, and there's more and more people who are being forgotten. You know, they may be from a different ethnic class, they may live in a different neighborhood than we used to, but um, the reality is you've got people coming back from the Afghani and Iraqi wars today who are just forgotten. You know, and that, that's who Frankie Machine was in Man with the Golden Arm. He was a vet who had gotten hooked on drugs. And shit, I mean, we've got that going on today. And we have people, you know, veterans who just are forgotten. They're not on the top of people's list. And they don't understand why they're living in some shithole, you know, um, and not getting their life together. Well, it's because what we now have know is you know, PTSD. You know, it's, it's so there are these stories in our urban world that um, are still there to be told. We just, you know, you have to find the writers or documentary people, filmmakers, photographers to tell those stories. Yeah, no, certainly. Um, well, I'm really, I'm, it's a big deal that the that uh, people are going to be able to see the film 
uh, on WTTW this weekend. Um, when when can people see it, and where is the information about the schedule of where where people could see it? Oh God, you know you're you're. <laughs> I'm, I'm hitting you with all the big questions. Uh, you, you know that's the uh, okay. Hold on, I'm, I'm, yeah, I didn't actually have that. I should have that in front of me. Okay, so it's on WTTW, and it's Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, the twenty fourth. 25th and 26th and if you go to wttw.com you can find out you know all that info or you can go to augrinthemovie.com we also have a Facebook page Augrin the Movie Um, so those are all ways in which you get more info about it it's showing four times so you can watch it on broadcast if you've got cable you can find WTTW Prime and watch it set your DVR for it. Um, we're excited, and uh, um, this will be just the start of greater distribution. We'll have it out, hopefully, by the end of the year, beginning of next year, streaming and DVDs so that people can actually watch it um, that way as well. But this is really the beginning of that greater distribution that, that we're having. Great. Uh, Michael, it's, it's great. It's great to talk to you. Great to talk to you about uh, a Chicago you know, hero of mine, certainly, and I think, you know, one of the, the illest writers to ever do it in a city of the illest writers. So I think it's significant. I'm excited for people to to watch this film. Uh, where could people be in touch with you? Um, and also, of course, you're teaching again in the fall at Columbia right. College, depending right. on, you know, what format. But um, I know that, you know, there are students out there and, and want to be filmmakers who, who, who probably want to take your classes. So... Well, um, you can certainly go to the Columbia College website, which is colum.edu, colum.edu, and look me up. Or you can go to uh, montrosepictures.com, which is my uh, company's website, and you can see all the films that I've worked on. And you can also just connect to me through there, Uh, Facebook, Instagram. I'm on Instagram, so um, I'm even on Twitter, but I don't really use it a lot, so... uh, but yeah, there, there's lots of ways you can find me, and uh, I would love to talk to any you know people who want to talk about Chicago, talk about Algren, talk about documentary film, and if you bring all three together, then that's you know then you got me. All right, well, Michael, thanks so much for being in the corner store, and uh, yeah, it was a great conversation. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Shout out our super producer, DJ Cashera. Big up boss man, Todd Manley. Thank you to our official corner store photog, Mercedes Zapata. Salutes to the snack door, Max. Also, please, y'all, follow our Instagram. It's corner underscore pod on IG, on Twitter. Tell us who you want to see in the corner store. And also, please consider dropping a couple of dollars into our Patreon account. It's patreon.com, corner store underscore pod. The corner store is brought to you by Stolen Spirits.